0: God does not do coincidence. I mean, everything that God does is purposeful. Everything that God does in our lives, everything that God does with us collectively and what he's doing in your life personally and individually is all part of a plan that he is working. And if you're a believer, that plan is most emphatically, according to the scriptures, for your good. He's working towards an end that is for your good. And we know that the work of God in your life For your good is to ultimately, as a believer, to shape you more and more into the person of Christ. If you're here and you're not yet a believer, then the purpose that God is working in your life is to draw you to him, to reveal himself to you, to cause you to see his glory and his goodness, to draw you with his loving kindness so that you might understand what he's done for you in Christ, so that you might understand what are the riches that he makes available to anyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ. I say all that to say God's doing something all the time for his glory and for our good. He's working something. So you're not here by accident. There's something that God wants to do in your life. There's something that God wants you to hear. There's something that God wants you to respond to. There's some action that God wants you to take. Perhaps the purpose of God in your life this morning was primarily about a sin he wanted you to confess. And so the scriptures that you heard read just a few moments ago were exactly the medicine that God wanted to dispense to you today, exactly the remedy that he wanted you to have. And also to know that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins, just as Old and New Testament alike tell us. He will put those sins so far away from you that it looks like the east from the west. He puts them, buries them at the bottom of the sea. Maybe that's what you needed to hear. But I want you to do this this morning. I want you trusting in what I've just said to be true, that God has something for you. He's doing something for your sake to ask God, what does he have for you today? What does he want you to hear? What does he want you to know? What does he want you to trust or believe? What does he want you to do? How does he want you to live? I want you to spend just a few moments just in quiet prayer, seeking God for those things for your sake today. That's not a selfish prayer. That's a God-honoring prayer. God, God, what are you doing? Saying, teaching, revealing, calling, commanding, correcting in my life today. Let's spend a moment praying that way. Father, we come in great gratitude towards your your goodness and in all of your power. I pray that increasingly we would grasp as best we're able what it means that you are sovereign. And that by your providential hand, you cause things to come to pass that are good and right, always purposeful. For us, your, your people, your children, for the bride of our groom, Christ, your son, you're working towards a glorious end. We know that your word promises that we can't always see it. We don't feel it sometimes. But it's true. Nonetheless, you cause everything to work together for our good because we love you and we're called to your purpose. We praise you for that today. So, Father, in humble submission to you and to your will, what are, you, what are you saying to us today? What do you want us to hear? What do you want each person to hear? What do you want them to know and trust, fully believe in with their heart? What do you want them to do? What do you want us to live? And Father, for any person in this room not yet a believer, someone already in that process that you're revealing and you're drawing and you're enlightening, You're displaying yourself to them, Father. I pray that today they would see your glory in the face of Jesus and that you would lift the veil that has kept them from seeing. You put the thoughts in their minds, the desire in their heart, the information in their ears, and, Father, that you would draw them to yourself so that they would be saved today. So, Father, we yield ourselves to your purposes for us today. We come here to honor you. We come here to hear from you. We come here to worship you and to be obedient to you. We come here as your people. But Lord, we also acknowledge that you are generous and you long to give good gifts to your children. We're reminded of staggering but simple scriptures that we have not because we ask not. So Father, I ask now that you would hear the prayers of your people making requests to you. What we have need of, what we're desperate for, what we want to see you do in our lives or for our family's sake, in our health or our business or our marriage or for our children or for people we care about or whatever it may be, Father, I pray that even now as we bring our request to you, Father, you'd be honored by our faith, you'd be well pleased that we come to you in faith trusting that you alone have what we need. That you're good beyond good, powerful beyond power. Lord, we can thank you in advance by faith that you hear our prayers and you respond with always what is best. If we ask you for bread, you would not give us a stone. So, Father, in this room with hundreds praying, even now, hear our request. Father, thank you. Thank you for that. Glorify yourself and how you answer and how you respond. Lord, we seek you today. We trust you. We implore these things of you. We ask, Father. And in advance by faith, thank you. We pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen. First Timothy chapter six. We're just about through with this first of letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. And let me sort of set the stage as kind of a quick review. And this would also be particularly helpful if you're new to us or you haven't been here for the whole series, or you're just jumping in. Paul's letter to Timothy, while written to a young pastor that Paul is obviously and clearly mentoring, he, he loves Timothy, he cares about Timothy, he's imparting wisdom to Timothy. God is using him, he's inspiring him to speak truth to Timothy and how he leads the church. And the focal point of 1 Timothy is very much the collective people of God, the body of Christ. If you go back to the middle of the text, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, you see the heart of it, the hub of the wheel, that we may know how we ought to live as Christians. That's my summary statement, how we ought to behave in the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, which is the church. How Christians ought to be Christians with other Christians, how we live together. When Paul writes again later to Timothy, the focus will be more on individual Christian behaviors, although there's a lot of intersection between the two. And we get to chapter 6 the last of these chapters we come to verse 2 in the second part where Paul tells Timothy teach and urge these things teach and urge these things and that's that's a bridge statement it's connecting between things we just heard and things we're about to hear now if you were here last week you remember we talked about this challenge in the early church about their attitudes towards those who were enslaved and particularly the attitudes of the enslaved how do you How do you follow Christ when you're at rock bottom? How do you live your life for God's glory when nothing seems to be going your way? Can you honor and glorify God with your life in spite of your circumstances? When things aren't fair, when things aren't just, when you're not treated well, when you're not given what you think you ought to deserve, when life isn't all that you hoped it would be, can you still honor Christ? And the answer emphatically is is yes. Can we love and honor Christ? And then we come to this next stage about doctrine and life and With this bridge statement, teach and urge these things. Now, the teach and urge these things is not just about what we just heard about slavery and honor of God. It's about everything that we've heard so far. It's the way that Paul interjects into this letter, this ongoing reminder. The truth of God matters, so teach it. Teach people the truth. And then he uses this word, urge these things. If you go back to 1 Timothy 4.11, you find a parallel verse. 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. Now, I'm not exactly sure why the interpreters of Scripture changed those words in some interpretations, some versions of Scripture, because it's the exact same word in the original, and it's an imperative. So what I'm saying here is this. The Bible is reminding us, what we teach is not just what we're supposed to know. Doctrine is not just a collection of facts and information. What we teach is, It's what we're supposed to do. And so Paul is telling Timothy that when you instruct the church and when you lead the church, instruct them to know certain things without a doubt that these things are true and you believe these things to be from God and this is what's right and this is what we base everything else on, but do it. Do these things. If I were writing a simple summary here, I would say the message thus far is live the truth. Live the truth. Don't just know the truth. Just knowing things is not going to transform your life. Knowing things is not going to cause you to enjoy a relationship with God in Christ. Knowing things is not going to benefit your family by itself or change the community that you live in. It's to know and do these things, to live this out, because that's where life is found. It's in the knowledge of the truth applied, played out. The idea here is doctrine. The worth of doctrine for all of your life. Now, let me just say this. I, I'm not trying to get into your head and figure out what you're thinking. And I, that's a dangerous thing to do just in general. I find myself giving that advice to people all the time. Don't think for a minute you know what other people are thinking. You know, that's destructive to every sort of conversation and relationship to think that you know. Well, I know what you're thinking. No, you don't know what I'm thinking. You know, somebody said that to me once, and you know, I said, no, what, what I'm actually thinking about, I don't know why, is Fruit Loops. I, I really am hungry, and that's what I want. <laughs> I, I can remember in, in my previous church, I used to not sit on the front row, and I appreciate this right here. You may see some of these high school girls. I invited them. I challenged them Sunday night. Why don't you girls step up and sit on the front row where all the action is? And here they are. They displaced me from my seat, so praise God for them. <laughs> in my old church, I, I, I wouldn't sit on the front row sometimes because... I had people on the worship team that would say to me, we can tell during the worship service that you really didn't like that song or you didn't think we were doing well or something was wrong because we look at your face, you're doing this. And I said, I'm really not thinking about you at all. I was really thinking about, one, am I wearing the right microphone pack? Do my socks match? Or um, do I have the right notes in place? Or I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to explain that difficult point. Don't assume you know what I'm thinking here. Don't assume you know what I'm thinking. But for you, when I say doctrine, I'm afraid some of you automatically go, oh, no, more of this. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. I mean, we're teaching doctrine in open classes. We're emphasizing doctrine everywhere you turn. We're emphasizing creeds and confessions. We're we're returning to these texts. We're repeating them and, and emphasizing them. Why? Because the truth matters. The truth matters. What we understand to be right versus what we understand to be wrong absolutely matters. And what we're talking about is doctrine. There is a glaring deficit Of doctrinal preaching and teaching in our churches today i say that just with a simple purview of the landscape of messages that i see or clips that are posted or twitter accounts and that people seem to have this disdain for doctrine just just give me jesus they'll say but but what sort of jesus who is this jesus that you want what did he do what did he say what does he expect from us just give me jesus I think too many people today, and maybe even some of us in this room, would think doctrine is really, that's more of the, that's the purview of scholars, you know, people who like to debate things, minutia, details that don't matter. I think others shy away from doctrine because one of the contentions I hear most often is it's divisive. It's divisive. You know, when you start talking about doctrine, then, you know, people are, oh, they're arguing in there, they're taking sides. Well, doctrine is divisive, it's divisive. Necessarily so, because truth does divide. It divides itself from error, and sometimes division is necessary. Um, some see their spiritual life, loosely, I'll use the term religion, their religious experience. They see it as very subjective, not objective. In other words, um, how does this make me feel? What is this going to do for me? How is this going to benefit me? Uh, let me make a claim here, just for a moment, okay? Whatever doctrine that you ever hear taught from Scripture, whether it is the most critical doctrine like the resurrection or the virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ, or something that we would consider much more minor, more debatable, any doctrine that you hear that's true and right from Scripture is valuable for you, even if you don't know how it's valuable for you. Every doctrine, every teaching is worthwhile, the Scriptures say, and that's so critical to us. Others just don't want to dig in deeply enough. We'd rather go with our own thoughts, imagines, imaginations, experiences. We want something to hit our emotions. Well, I want to start with hitting the brain. Why should we care about doctrine? Well, when I say "doctrine," what do I mean? When he says, "Preach and teach," or "teach and urge," or "teach and command these things," that these things that's, that's doctrine. That's revealed truth. The things that God has revealed to us in His Word clearly communicated us, informed us of, helped us to reach an understanding of rightly by His Holy Spirit. These are the things that you teach. This is what life is based on. Teach these things. Revealed truth. The foundation of our faith. Without any foundation, everything crumbles. Now I'm going to go through rapid fire today. A list of why doctrine matters. You're not going to find these blanks in your notes. So if you have a blank edge that you can write on or something that you can just quickly sketch these things out if you want to take the notes or you can revisit this later why does doctrine matter why should we teach and urge these things just like just like timothy had to do in ephesus in the first century why why now here among us number one correct doctrine leads people to jesus when you teach the truth you're going to find the personification of that truth is is christ jesus when we say what we believe as a people, it's not a creed ultimately, though we have creeds that we believe. It's not a confession of faith, though we do have a confession of faith that we teach by. It's not just ideas or concepts. It's a person. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The truth that we teach as God's people is objective. It's not subjective. It's not. This is our truth. You have to decide if Your truth will match our truth, but this is our truth. Choose it versus their truths. We're saying this is the truth, and it's all rooted in Christ, a person. Correct doctrine also leads to correct living. Ultimately, we all do what we believe. We all do. One way or another, what we believe is what we do. Our actions always spring, whether it's conscious or subconscious, at the root of things that we hold to be true. How I see myself, what I think is true of me, informs how I live. What I think about God informs how I worship. And even in simple ways, what I think about my car informs how I drive. Do I think it has the ability to pass this car going uphill right now? Can I make it through this little space between these two cars on the interstate? Can I handle this curve that says 35 while I'm going 65? All those things have to do with what I believe. I do what I believe all the time. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says this. We have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. Listen to this phrase. I believed and so I spoke. So we also believe and speak. In other words, what I'm believing to be true, that comes out. And not just in what I say, but in what I do. Number three, correct doctrine protects us from wandering off in the myth and error. Corrects, it keeps us from wandering off. This is what we saw earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. Preach the word. Give people the scriptures, he said. He said, because there's going to come a time when people won't endure sound teaching, which is, there's the parallel, preaching of the word is, equals sound teaching. There's going to come a time where people don't want that anymore. Instead, they're going to want want people to teach them, say to them, things that scratch where they itch, things that make people feel good, having itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. One of my fears for the modern church, us included, Is that not enough of us have enough of a filter to be able to recognize, wait, that's not sound teaching. Wait, that doesn't accord with sound doctrine. That's not true. Number four, correct doctrine promotes unity and health among God's people. You said, well, I thought you just said it's divisive. It divides truth from error, but it unifies and unites and builds bonds that get stronger and stronger between God's people. We'll see this in the text we'll be looking at in just a moment. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, that's what creates the messes. The more you and I understand true doctrine, believe it, encourage each other to live it, the closer knit we're becoming, the stronger we are, the more deeply rooted we are, the healthier we are. Correct doctrine also protects us from God's judgment. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit expressly says in the later times, some will depart from the faith... By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. How do we protect people from that? We tell them the truth. Listen, this is a lie. This is a deception. This will destroy you. The ultimate aim of Satan is not deception for deception's end, it's not confusion for the sake of confusion, it's deception for the sake of destruction. Okay, it's it's confusion. For the sake of destruction, so that he might destroy that which is good and right and honors God. And he might destroy those who bear the image of God, me and you. Every deception of the enemy, every deception has its ultimate end towards that. How might he destroy us through what we believe? Correct doctrine also keeps us connected to the timeless teachings of the church. What's orthodox? What's true? What's right? Jude 1.3, contend for the faith that was once And for all entrusted to the saints I have this image in my mind that I return to again and again it used to be on my whiteboard two lines one straight and true one that made a long slow deviation from that line and it was my reminder that there is a truth once and for all established this is what God gave in the the prophets reiterated in the apostles this is what was affirmed and revealed in christ these are the teachings of the church from the very beginning and this is what will hold true to the end and what is forever secured in the heavenlies this is what's right and true and good and it is this pure straight line but over time this is our history our trajectory it's this long slow arc away from that away from that so what is our challenge today to constantly be returning to that constantly evaluating is what we say true It's what we believe right. It's how we are living reflective of this. One challenge I always have in my own mind that would make it anyone preaching or teaching is this. I imagine these strange things like, what what if Peter and James and John just happened to swing through Dothan on a Sunday morning and sat over there somewhere and heard us read Scripture and pray prayers? sing songs and give a sermon would they say when these people dress funny they look a little funny I don't know why none of the women have their heads covered um you know some things like that but at least it looks like what we believe or they would say what in the world is this what in the world is this I want to be faithful I want to be faithful to that first century by the way I'm not saying you need to have your head covered I'm saying that's what they would say some of you can be writing notes to each other. What do you mean by head coverings? You're gonna miss everything else I said, and be thinking about the email you want to send me about head coverings. Send it. <laughs> Correct doctrine protects the mission of the church. It keeps, us, it keeps us where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to do. I mean, so many churches today, and I'm not ranting at other churches, I'm trying to preserve us and our mission, but so many churches have deviated from where they began. What was the mission when they were started? What was the purpose and point of the denomination? Why are they there? I mean, it's to do more than just good deeds out there in the community, it's to do more than feed the the hungry or clothe the poor or pray for the sick. Those things are good things, but it's not the ultimate thing. What's the mission of the church? We see it in Second Peter chapter 2. False prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They'll secretly bring in destructive heresies. They'll even deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. If we lose our commitment to the truth, we're going to lose Our mission for the truth, we're going to lose our guts to speak the truth. We're going to lose the whole thrust of what God set us out to do. And correct doctrine is absolutely essential for discipleship. Not only to know Christ, a person to be believed in and trusted, to be worshipped and adored, to be followed and submitted to, but our discipleship as a Christian. Think of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not go out and make converts, with the presupposition of the gospel, the good news of how a person becomes a Christian, when they trust in Christ, they believe that good news, that though they are sinners, God is a far better Savior, and Jesus affords forgiveness of sins for anyone who will seek it, he'll grant eternal life. You baptize them who become followers of Christ. And then what does it say to do? You teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. You can't be a disciple without doctrine. And that's just all intro. Doctrine matters. And so when he says, teach and observe these things, that's why this is so critical. what I'm about to say is based on that. So look at this next section of verses. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. So did you catch the beginning phrase? Anything different than what I just said, what's been revealed through the holy writings of Scripture by the Spirit of God for the people of God in all times and places. If anything is different than the revealed truth of God And does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This sounds like two different themes, but... I'm keeping them together because I want you to see the obvious overlap and how one sets up the other, how one is an object lesson for the other. First of all, simply some defining marks of false teaching. False teaching, the content, not the person, the stuff that's coming out of their mouth or flowing out of their ministry or published in their books. Three defining marks. One, false teaching differs from Scripture. If that Scripture is that one solid true line from beginning to end, the truth of God forever established, the one we're supposed to contend for, fight for, once and for all delivered, false teaching deviates from that. That's either not what that says or not what that means. And so that's why understanding Scripture and how to interpret it and understand it, how to understand right doctrine is critical for us. It's either not what that says at all or that's not at all what that means. And if time would allow... Um, Plus, it would be um, quite a a journey down the many rabbit holes. I could show you example after example after example after example after well-known, prominent, successful pastors, teachers, ministers in churches, large, influential, growing of that sort of false teaching that is just not what the Scripture says or not what the Scripture means. Over and over, it differs from Scripture. Number two, false teaching contradicts Christ. It contradicts Christ. That's not who Christ is, or that's not what Christ said, or that's not what Christ did. It's one of those three things. It's not who Christ is. Wait, that doesn't reflect Christ. You don't get to make Jesus into your image. Jesus is not, here's here's my boomer reference, he's not Gumby. You don't get to twist him around however you want him to do whatever you want him to do. Jesus is not this mythological figure that we get to use in any way possible that suits us. What did he actually come to do? It was really a very narrow focus. He came in obedience to the Father to secure a people for all eternity as a gift back to the Father. How did he do that? By submitting himself to the will of the Father, giving up the glories of heaven, and yielding himself to being human on this earth. And all the indignities of that. To live sinlessly, though he was faced with every sort of temptation common to man, but he never sinned. To intentionally, willfully, voluntarily die sacrificially for our sins. I was reading this argument, this debate online the other day. Ages old, goes back to the time of Christ at the cross. The same sort of stuff they yelled at Jesus when he's up there on the cross dying. Hey, if you can... can. Uh, you know, if, if you can save anyone, save yourself. If you're the savior, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And I've heard that sort of argument formed in many different ways here and there since. You know, if Jesus had come down from the cross that day, you know, up there nailed to the cross, dying, if he would have miraculously come down from the cross, I would believe in him then. I would believe in him. And you know what I would say to you? That's great, good for you, so would I. But none of us would be saved. If he had come down from the cross, not one of you would have been saved. He didn't come down from the cross because he was not able. He, came down, he didn't come down from the cross because he could not fulfill the mission of God and save you had he not died for you. His death on the cross is essential. And his resurrection, that he was not a martyr, not a victim. Jesus was raised by the power of God for our salvation so we can have new life. Everyone saw him. They watched him ascend, he's going to return, he's going to rule and reign forever, and that's who Christ is. False teaching contradicts either who he is, what he said, or what he did. Evaluate according to Christ. Does this match Christ? The obvious implication there, which is nowhere written in your notes, but should be stored in your thinking, is, I better know Christ, hadn't I? I better know the biblical Christ, so I can evaluate according to him. Number three, false teaching undermines godliness. Now, I have to be careful with the parallels I make because no teacher, those who teach the truth or those those who teach false teaching, is immune from immoral failure. No, No one is immune from that, for falling in immorality and sinfulness, no one. However, I would suggest that we see a far greater disconnect and a far greater propensity for and a far greater occurrence of false teachers living ungodly lives because there's a disconnection. Because the truth of God necessarily produces godliness. Different versions of God, different ideas about God, different understandings of what God requires, what the commandments of God are, expectations of God are, will inevitably lead to ungodliness. We do what we live. If we have a wrong view of God, a wrong view of God's word, a wrong view of Christ, a wrong view of God's spirit, why would we not also have a life that doesn't reflect God or Christ or the fruits of his spirit? And so false teaching undermines godliness. Should we evaluate a teacher according to what he does as well as what he says? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there good teachers who have given us good information and written good materials that we now set aside because of bad living, immoral lives? Absolutely. Those things run together. The validity of truth shows up in the daily routine of life. Your doctrine always determines how you live. Now, that's false teaching. Let's talk about false teachers for a moment, the individual's. Now, before any of you get a little, you know, a little bent out of shape here, feel like I'm being a little too pointed, I'm going to try not to mention your favorite teacher that's a false teacher, if you have one. I hope you don't. I'm going to assume, first of all, you don't have any favorite false teachers. But I'm not going to guarantee that if one pops in my head, I won't say their name. But I want you to look at the biblical descriptions here. And while I do, I want you to apply this like a grid to the teaching that you see. You use the scriptures here. False teachers tend to be simultaneously, which sounds almost incongruous, arrogant and ignorant. The worst sort of teaching is a teaching that's arrogant and ignorant. So again, I don't want to mention names, but Mike Todd. I was watching a clip. If you haven't heard of Mike Todd, then that's good for you. If you have, um, then take caution. Avoid. If you're listening to him, stop. And please, let's have a conversation. Let me tell you why. He's one of the fastest, leads one of the fastest growing churches, has a very influential now public footprint. But his teaching, when I, when I saw that statement, well, that's him. It's just, this arrogance, this, this pride, this, this sense of self coupled with, man, you cannot be that ignorant about Scripture because that is not at all what the Bible teaches. What Bible are you reading? What, what school did you go to? Who taught you this stuff? But we see that again and again, this arrogance and this ignorance together people so eager to say something that's unprecedented and my guiding thought is this if I ever say anything to you that no Christian has ever taught or said before in the history of the church then you can guarantee that what I just said is wrong as the wise author of Ecclesiastes said there is nothing new under the sun truth is truth and it has been since the time of Christ when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the teaching of the church. That was established then and it doesn't change. False teachers also crave controversy. And they major in the minors. So much of false teaching has this sort of approach to scripture. Let's find one or two verses in the text. Not in its original language, mind you, but in our language. Let's find one or two words in that text in the English language and then let's just spin off all the different possible words, applications, meanings, ap- or any approach to that word and let's create something new altogether from that. And it's this idea that I'm seeing in Scripture exactly as this. They, they crave controversy, quarrels about words, etc. You know, when you do that, one, you're making a text that only speaks to one particular audience and the Bible rightly taught speaks to every audience everywhere. You know, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're preaching with an interpreter in Guatemala or you're in a village church in India. The scriptures speak there to those people in that setting and in their situation in life, and it speaks to their needs. It speaks to their thinking and their hearts. But when you have these bizarro, word-centered, English-centered, my own thoughts uh, kind of messages, listen for that in the preaching. It'll make more sense when you hear Say, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. That's not what the big picture of that text is about. No one could read that passage and say, that's clearly what it's about. That's when you hear, oh, I never saw that in the text before. It's because it's not there. <laughs> it's made up, it's nonsensical. It's this idea of controversy. And then even in the minors, Is that really what this passage is about? Is that really what it's saying here? Is that the takeaways? This is what God is saying to me in this text. And maybe this is the worst part. False teaching, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and I would argue that most often it's intentional. False teaching caters to broken thinking and base desires. It it, it caters to the worst of us. It caters to the worst ways that we think, And the worst desires that we have, that's marketing, man. That's just straight marketing. I'm going to appeal to the stuff I know people already want. And I'm going to give them a means to get it. I'm just going to make God that means. I mean, listen how the scriptures are written here for a moment. It creates these things, the envy, the dissension, the slander, the suspicions, the friction among people who are... Listen to this phrase. Depraved in mind, deprived of truth. What a horrible combination. Before Christ, that's all of us are broken thinking. And without the truth given to that broken thinking, it'll never change. If that thinking never changes, then behavior never can. My life will never be transformed. But in that broken thinking, yes, I want this. I want to know how I can receive a blessing. I want to know how I can. Figure out my destiny. I want to know how to reach my potential. And we see these things over and over and over, and it appeals to us. Listen, if God is just a means to the things you want with or without God, it's not God that you want. It's the stuff. It's the stuff of God. And this is what false teaching is doing. If you want to feel justified in living without God or living as your own God, pursuing your own desires for the rest of your life as if there is no God, then false teaching is exactly what you want. The prosperity gospel is exactly what you want. But if you want God, there's something different. And all the while, the context of this text suggests that these false teachers then and now, which shows you human nature spread out over 2,000 years, they're profiting from the lost, the foolish, and the ignorant. So much false teaching is profiting from the lost, the foolish, and the ignorant. I say those not as judgmental words, but as apt descriptors. To not know the truth. To be far from God. Listen, in my depraved thinking, in my deprived mind, man. And they not only minister for money, but here's the worst part. And I want to make sure you hear this part, so stick with me just for a moment. It's not only the ministry for money that Paul's accusing those false teachers of, which we still see today. Even more destructive is the message of a distorted gospel. And what has been in place, this is not a modern phenomena, but what has been in place even since the first century in the age of the apostles, this gospel that distorts Christ as a means to an end And not the end himself. The root of false teaching, best exemplified in the prosperity gospel, is the distortion of what the good news of God in Christ is, the diminishment of who Christ is, and the purpose of Christ to give you the things you want with or without Christ. Christ as a means to the end, not the end himself. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. If you do these things that God wants you to do, or if you believe these things that we're saying, if you accept this this different doctrine, which we've already established is different from the Scriptures, it's different from what God has revealed, it's different from the Orthodox teachings of the church, if you believe this new doctrine, if you believe these new teachings, what's the gain for you? Gain. What's the benefit? The benefits. Look at what you're going to get. And God forbid there may be some people even in this room you came to Christ with some sort of bait and switch. If you come to Christ, this, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get this, you're going to get this, you're going to get this blessing, you get this blessing. I wish I, could, I wish I could express more clearly, more passionately, more strongly how wrong that is. You guys remember C.V. Vadavana, who was here during our missions conference. You remember C.V. with a beard from India? Leads a ministry in one of the southern states of India. They have a seminary, they train up students, have schools in different parts, they've, they've they planted churches. He sent me some text messages. And you know, here's the troubling thing, pardon me while I rant for a moment, I get to do this. This is what's troubling to me. I've got about four or five news apps on my phone. And there is not even a hint or a breath of any of this on any of those news apps, conservative or otherwise. But I bet not many of us have read about the, the massive uprising against Indian Christians in several states in the north happening right now. He sent me updates this week. I've got videos on my phone that are heartbreaking. Pastors who've been killed, thousands of people, not tens or twenties or hundreds, thousands displaced from their homes. There are people in these communities now that are fleeing into the jungles and they're fleeing and, and hitting the gates of military bases for safety and security hundreds of churches destroyed many people losing their lives because they're christian okay so why am i telling you this i'm not trying to just stir your emotions here okay so you go to that city and you're preaching a message to those people or let's say you're you go to that city during a conference for those pastors what do you tell them if you believe in jesus your people who are sick are going to get well If you believe in Jesus, you're going to get prosperity and that car that you want. You just need to claim it. You need to speak it into existence. Your words have power. You need to speak with faith. God's going to give you a new home. He's going to give you all that. You're going to reach your destiny. You're going to understand your purpose. You're going to have all these blessings. How do you tell that to someone who knows as you're speaking to them, if I proclaim Christ publicly, I might die for it. How do you tell them Christ is still worth it? You have to tell them Christ is still worth it. That the ultimate gain of everything is not what Christ can give you now. It's who Christ is and what you will have in Christ forever and ever. And though this world may treat you like the worst of the worst, in Christ you get the best of the best forever and ever, and he's worth it. The same gospel has to be taught in our crusades here and in the streets of India and in villages in Africa and in the inner city of Guatemala, All those things have to be the same. So what's the greatest gain? Paul says it's contentment in Christ. Christ is the great gain. To know and have Christ. Godliness isn't the means to financial gain. Godliness is the gain. To know Jesus, to believe in Him and trust in Him, to live for Him and through Him, in Him. To enjoy Him and long for Him. That's the gain. To have intimacy with Christ is our ultimate need satisfied. Listen to some of these statements by the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words in Timothy. He also wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the verse you preach there. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I can enter eternity with no home. I can enter eternity with scars on my back, burns on my body. I cannot enter eternity without Christ. I'm not saying I don't value home or health, or or safety. But I value Christ more, and and in comparison to Christ, everything else is rubbish. How can I make a comparison like that? Likewise, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am. Remember what we talked about with those in slavery in the first century? Whatever situation I am, I've learned to be content. I know how to be brought low. This is his testimony here. I know how to abound. Man, I've been at the bottom. I've been at the top. I was the guy. I was the one that the the Sanhedrin sent out. I was the point man. I was the inquisitor of the first century, defending Judaism against this false religion called the way. I was the man, the teacher of teachers, the leader of leaders. When they wanted to send someone to happen, they sent me. I, I know what it's like to have authority and influence and power. And I know what it means to be brought low. I'm the guy that had to be lowered over the wall in a basket so I could escape. I'm the one that was stoned. They thought I was dead, and they left me laying there, and I walked away. I'm the one that's been in prison, and shipwrecked, and snake bitten. I'm the one that's been beaten multiple times. I know what it's like. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of place, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You want a life goal? You want a real life goal that honors Christ? Not figuring out your destiny. Figure out this secret. I have learned how to face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's your favorite NBA back of your high top verse. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul wasn't talking about making three pointers. He wasn't talking about closing the next real estate deal. He wasn't talking about passing your next big exam. He was talking about surviving in any situation. I've learned it through Christ who gives me strength. I have Christ, and Christ gives me strength. So I'm going to close with just a few keys to contentment. If you're thinking, "No, oh, he's not going to mention the parts about money and all that. No, I am. I actually am. First of all, I want you to consider the, the target audience of the text. In a little while, Paul's going to be addressing the rich among them. To the rich among you, what should you trust in? How should you you live your life if you're blessed? This is aimed at those who are not rich among them, the poor among them. To the poor among them. And when he says with, with food and clothing we should therewith be content, he's not saying this is the maximum that you're allowed as a Christian. Everything else is sinful. He's saying this is the minimum you can have and still be contented. Think about that. Can, can I be deprived of everything but the essentials? And we could probably rightly assume housing would be in that too. Place to live, shelter, food, clothing. If my life was reduced to just those things, could I have contentment? The answer for 99.99% of us is no, okay? Let's not hyper-spiritualize this. Oh, yes, I would be very content. No, the answer is not. So what do we, what's wrong with our thinking? What's wrong with our view of stuff and life and God and all that? That's where we've got to make our own applications here. But what is he saying in general? Christians can and should live differently than those who don't have Christ. Why? Because we have Christ. We have the assurance that he loves us and everything he does in our lives is through that love. He he hasn't abandoned us. He's not unaware of us. He's not unkind towards us. He doesn't lack resources to give to us or a desire to give those resources to us. He loves us. We know he's sovereign over us. That that, that means everything that happens is either caused by or allowed by his hand. One way or another, whether we understand it or not, there's nothing that's outside of him. God never looks at your situation or mine and says, man, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about that. Wish I could help. That's not what he does. And he's generous. He's generous. So what is this passage challenging us to do? When it comes to the stuff of this world, we do a lot better, me included. This hits home to think eternally. To think eternally. I'm convicted of reading this text. I spend way too much time thinking in temporal terms. In temporal terms. I guess I've kind of hit that stage of life. I won't call it midlife because I passed that a while back. I'm in a different stage of life now. Not that I'm thinking about retirement, but I am. Not because I'm ready to retire, but because I'm wondering, like, am I going to be able to eat when I retire? And what's this going to look like? What's going to happen with investments or Social Security or or just uh, am I saving anything? Am I preparing myself? You know, I'm I'm thinking about those things. And as I'm reading this text and going through this text this week, I'm convicted. Man, I've spent so much more time, like, trying to do the math on, okay, if I retire at this age, I'll have this. If I retire at this age, I might have this. If Social Security does this, instead of thinking eternally store for yourself treasures in heaven i mean the bible couldn't be clearer and here i am talking about what am i going to eat when i'm 74 years old where am i going to live what am i going to drive i'm not saying we shouldn't plan and be wise i'm saying the majority of us i think if you're like me then i know that you're guilty of this we spend a lot more time thinking temporarily not eternally and then the challenge is to simply live simply to live simply this world's not our home, we're just passing through. I hate giving cheesy quotes and illustrations. Nonetheless, here comes one. John D Rockefeller's funeral, someone approached one of his assistants and asked him, "How much how much did he leave behind? I'm just curious, you know, how much did he leave behind?" The answer, "All of it." <laughs> he left it all behind. Every bit of it. We brought nothing into this world and it's equally clear we can take nothing out. Would we be better off living simply? And particularly for those who have this if-then sort of thinking, yeah, that, that works for you or that works for him or that works for them because they've got this, 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 and this, and my life looks like this, 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 and this. I want you to consider the rest of the story. Now, I just put this gently like this, but let me hammer the point home. Carefully consider the alternative to contentment. Okay, if if contentment is the life goal and I can find that contentment in Christ, what's the alternative to contentment? And, And what's the cost of not being contented? Well, listen to what he says. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. So, again, just simply understanding the text, My desire for money will put me into temptations that I would not face if I didn't want to be rich. That's tempting me to do things that I wouldn't normally do if that wasn't my desire. So remember what we learned uh, quite a while back when it comes to sin and desire and temptation? There is no temptation where there is no desire. Okay, So it's my desires that are fueling my temptations. So this desire now is making me vulnerable to all these temptations. And then the word snare. Snare's a trap. So Satan's laying traps for the greedy, for the wealth and rich seekers. They're laying traps there, traps you wouldn't have to worry about if that wasn't your desire. And then consider this, many senseless and harmful desires. The desire to be rich can be accompanied with harmful desires. I mean, we see the statistics. I don't know what they are. The percentage of people who win a lottery and then within years are broke or worse. Athletes who sign rich contracts not so many years later are bankrupt. What, What would I do with the riches if I had them? What would that do to my life? What would that do for my love of Christ? What would that do for my heart to serve and to honor Him? What would it do? Do I even know? He said, because some, because they crave this, they desire it, they've wandered away from the faith. Some have pierced themselves with many pangs. Maybe there's some testimonies in here. Someone would say that. I spent my life going after that, and all I did was compromise. All, all I did was make bad choices. All, all, of I did, all I did was hurt myself and other people in that pursuit, and I don't anymore. This is the challenge of the Scripture. Think eternally. Live simply. Consider the alternative. And we think of Christ, and this is the message that the church in Ephesus needs and the, the message our church needs. Obviously, Christ has won many benefits for us. The book of Ephesians tells us we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. But the great blessing of Christ is that he gives us God himself. That we get to know God Imagine if you could have all the stuff of this world. I mean, everything, anything your heart desires. What if nothing was outside of your reach? All was available to you. And you could have it without having God. What would you have? What would you have? And and likewise, an illustration that I remember reading, given so well from John Piper. What if you could die and go to heaven? And every good thing you want is there. Everything you desire is there, but God is not there. You know what that would make you? A pagan. A pagan. Our desire ultimately has to be Christ. What's the sweetest, highest, best, final good of the gospel? The good news, Piper asks. What's the sweetest, highest, best, final good of the good news that makes the good news good and without which all the other goods of the good news wouldn't be good? What makes it all good? God. That you get to have God, that's the invitation. To know him and to find your satisfaction in him. That's your life goal. Set it that high. Let's pray. Father, I echo a prayer of the Apostle Paul that I may know Christ. That I may know Christ. and If that should mean the, the fellowship of suffering with him, for him, then so be it. If that's the knowing the benefits the glory of his resurrection and return, the joy of eternity, so be it. I just want to know Christ. Father, I pray increasingly, I I want that for myself. I I want that secret of contentment. In plenty or in want. Father, when you bless me, I pray that my satisfaction would not be in those blessings, but in you, the giver of good gifts. When things are hard or difficult, I pray that I would not seek my satisfaction in material things or stuff, but I again would seek my satisfaction in you who know me, love me, care for me, and have promised to take care of me. Father, I pray that for all of us in this room, it wouldn't be the things that you could give us that we seek, but it would be you that we seek that we may know you, that we may be found in you, having a righteousness, not of our own, but a righteousness that's Christ. And that in knowing you, we might be able to enjoy you forever and ever, Father. This is our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.